Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Agincourt established Henry V's reputation as a great, divinely sanctioned king, and made his authority unquestioned in England. Even before he returned home, Parliament met and approved a further generous subsidy. Then, in a move wholly without precedent in English history, the Assembly voluntarily granted to the king, for the rest of his life, the revenues from customs duties on all imports and exports. It was both a vote of confidence in the king and approval to continue his war. Henry used these augmented financial resources to ready a new invasion of France. The preparations took 20 months. In the meantime, his brother, John, Duke of Bedford, commanded a fleet that defended Harfleur against the French. On August 15, 1416, Bedford defeated a French and Genoese armada in a hard-fought battle at the mouth of the Seine. The fighting lasted for seven hours and inflicted heavy losses on both sides. Bedford would subsequently emerge as the last great English commander of the Hundred Years' War. On August 1st, 1417, King Henry returned to Normandy with an army of 10,000 men. He also pursued a new strategy. Gone was the chevauchée, the wide-ranging raid meant to destroy French resources, humiliate French rulers, and provoke French armies to fight. The English would now conquer Normandy. This strategy depended on successful sieges. Learning from his experience at Harfleur, Henry had equipped his army with a powerful siege train and contingents of specialist miners and engineers. Furthermore, he was also able to divide his army and attack multiple targets simultaneously. For the next two years, the English systematically took walled towns and strongholds. The campaign, the longest of the Hundred Years' War, culminated with the siege of the Norman capital of Rouen in July 1418. The city surrendered six months later. By the summer of 1419, all of Normandy was in Henry's hands. Only the great fortified abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel, perched high on its tidal island in the far west of the country, remained to the French. To hold his new conquest, Henry methodically created a friendly population. Normans, who were willing to give him allegiance and collaborate with the English, were treated well. Those who refused were stripped of their lands and forced into exile in the Valois-ruled part of France. Henry then took the confiscated lands, which ranged from vast estates to little plots, and awarded them to his soldiers in exchange for their promise to defend Normandy in the future. In this way, the king created a powerful vested interest in England in the success of the war in France. The English conquest of Normandy was decisively helped by two French weaknesses. First, the trauma of Agincourt was still fresh for French generals and soldiers. They refused to meet the English on the battlefield, especially if King Henry was in command. The second, and more important reason, was the renewal of the civil war between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. As we've seen, contrary to what many historical writers once believed, at Agincourt, the two factions had united against the common enemy. The defeat reignited all the old hostilities. The Burgundians rushed to blame the Armagnacs for the disaster. This may seem strange, given that Duke John of Burgundy had not been present at the battle. 
but the Armagnacs had been completely discredited by the capture of most of their leaders, including Charles of Orléans. By contrast, Duke John's brothers, the Duke of Bar and the Duke of Brabant, and many of his closest followers had died fighting. Therefore, the Burgundians could cast themselves as heroes, the Armagnacs as cowards. In April 1417, Duke John issued a manifesto in which he accused the Armagnacs of, among other things, deliberately permitting Henry to invade France and to win the Battle of Agincourt. At the same time, Duke John is playing a devious double game by negotiating with King Henry. The Duke of Burgundy met with the King of England at Calais in 1416. Historians remain uncertain about whether the two leaders concluded a secret alliance. What can be said with certainty is that following the meeting, Duke John did not interfere in the English conquest of Normandy, instead concentrating his forces to fight against the Armagnacs. In May 1418, Burgundian troops entered Paris and Duke John seized control of the Mad King, Charles VI. The Burgundians then carried out a bloody purge of their enemies in the capital. As recorded in the journal of an anonymous Parisian bourgeois, there was not one of the principal streets of Paris without a killing in it. The dead were heaped up in piles, in the mud, like sides of bacon. The Dauphin Charles escaped and fled to the southern city of Bourges, where he assumed leadership of the Armagnacs. By 1419, Henry's conquest of Normandy placed the English within reach of Paris. This threat pushed the Armagnacs and Burgundians to try to make peace. On September 10, 1419, the Dauphin Charles and Duke John of Burgundy met on the bridge of Montereau to conclude a treaty of friendship. However, the Armagnac and Burgundian conflict had always been more than just a civil war. It had also been a merciless blood feud that had been ignited by Duke John's murder of Louis, Duke of Orléans, in 1407. On the bridge of Montereau, the supporters of the Dauphin and the Duke exchanged insults. A wild melee broke out during which one of the Dauphin's followers smashed Duke John's head with a battle axe. This is the hole by which the English entered France, was how a 16th century monk succinctly explained the significance of Duke John's fatal wound. Following the killing of his father on the bridge of Montereau, Philip, the new Duke of Burgundy, forged an alliance with King Henry V against the Armagnacs the formidable Burgundian army was added to the English forces. With the Burgundians now his allies, Henry set his sights on a new ambition, to make reality his claim to the throne of France. In 1420, he launched an offensive down the Seine toward Paris. The French were too divided and weak to resist. They rushed to make peace. The Treaty of Troyes of May 1420 appeared to be a complete triumph for Henry. He was formally made the heir of the mad king Charles VI. Furthermore, he was to marry Catherine, the French king's daughter, and their sons were to be kings of France after Henry. The Dauphin Charles and his offspring were formally disinherited. On December the 11th, 1420, Henry V made a triumphal entry into Paris. For the English, the Treaty of Troyes was the final peace that replaced the Great Peace of Bretigny yet the Armagnacs immediately repudiated it. From his court at Bourges, the Dauphin Charles continued to claim to be the legitimate heir to his father. Henry V and the English then committed themselves to the most expansive war aim of all, fighting on until the entire Kingdom of France agreed to the terms of the final peace. 
the years from 1420 to 1444 represented the longest period of sustained fighting of the entire Hundred Years' War. The Armagnacs and the other supporters of the Dauphin appeared hardly a match for the powerful combination of the English and Burgundian. In order to find more forces, the Dauphin Charles turned to the old alliance with Scotland. In 1419, the Scots dispatched a substantial expeditionary force to France. Dubbed the Great Army of Scotland, this force was particularly noteworthy because the Scots had raised a strong corps of longbowmen of their own. On March 22, 1421, at Beauger in Anjou, the French and the Army of Scotland wiped out an English army. The English commander, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, King Henry's brother, was killed, along with numerous notable veterans of Agincourt. Unfortunately, no reliable and detailed descriptions of the Battle of Beauger exist. I would have liked to have known more about it, especially the role of the Scots archers. Beauger was the greatest English battlefield defeat of the war so far. It burnished the reputation of Scottish soldiers and drew the French and Scots even closer together. The Guard Ecossaise, the Scots Guard, were ever afterwards the nearest troops to the person of the French king. Yet Beauger was largely barren of results. At the time of the battle, Henry V had been in England, crowning his new queen. He returned to France and vigorously renewed campaigning. Agincourt continued to work its spell on the French, who feared to give battle whenever the king was in command. Henry concentrated his efforts on taking the strongholds and cities around Paris. In the fall of 1421, he besieged the fortress town of Meaux. During the siege, he fell gravely ill. On August 31, 1422, Henry V, England's greatest warrior king, died at the castle of Montseigne, just outside Paris. His successor was his nine-month-old son, who became King Henry VI. Listeners to this podcast have heard me mention that historians tend to reject contingent events like the deaths of individuals, no matter how great, as having much of an effect on the course of history. Rather, the real historical drivers are massive, long-term, impersonal, social, economic, cultural, environmental, or medical forces. For the last one, think of the Black Death, which killed many, many more Europeans than all medieval wars put together. But after giving it a lot of thought, I must conclude that the death of King Henry V of England was a turning point of the Hundred Years' War specifically and of European history in general. By the end of his reign, Henry was the most powerful monarch in Christendom. He had pursued, with relentless determination, first the conquest of English domains in France, then the French throne itself. His successors included some fine generals and worthy statesmen, yet none were his equal, nor could they come close to matching his prestige and reputation. Nevertheless, I don't think even Henry V could have achieved a lasting union of the two kingdoms. Too many French opposed it, and England was, as we'll see, ultimately not strong enough to achieve such a goal. What would have likely happened had Henry lived was a partition of France that would have seen England permanently annexing Normandy and Aquitaine. The histories of England and France would then have been strikingly different. The war in France was now in the hands of John, Duke of Bedford, uncle and regent of the child king Henry VI. The French soon moved to test the new English regime. On October 1422, 
the mad King Charles VI had died. The Dauphin then claimed the throne as King Charles VII of France. With their old nemesis, Henry V, out of the way, Charles VII and his generals decided on a battle-seeking strategy in order to inflict a decisive defeat on Bedford and the English army. To bolster their forces, they went on a European recruiting spree. The Scots furnished another army of 2,500 men-at-arms and 4,000 archers. In addition, from Italy, the French hired a force of 2,000 Lombard-heavy cavalry. The Lombards rode horses wearing a new type of plate barding developed by Milanese armorers that gave significant protection against longbow arrows. In the face of the French threat, Bedford raised an army of about 10,000 men. It consisted of his own large retinue, English troops pulled from the garrisons of Normandy, and Normans in English service. The two armies met at Verneuil on August the 17th, 1424. Bedford deployed in the usual English style with longbowmen flanking men-at-arms. The battle began with a charge by the Lombard heavy cavalry. Thanks to their horses' heavy armor, the Lombards rode through the arrow storm unscathed. They then smashed into and broke through the English center, cutting Bedford's army in half. The Lombards carried on to attack and pillage the English baggage train. Remarkably, the English troops rallied. Bedford and his captains decided on an immediate counterattack before the Lombard heavy cavalry could return. With a great shout, the English advanced on the French and Scots. A fierce melee ensued. After shooting off their arrows, the English and Scottish longbowmen joined the hand-to-hand fighting. Eventually, the English prevailed. In the bloody rout that followed, the Scots were given no quarter and annihilated. In Orléans, the French celebrated Mass for the souls of the Scottish dead on the anniversary of Verneuil until the end of the 18th century. Verneuil was an English victory almost as great as Agincourt. The battle demonstrated that English discipline and fighting powers were at their peaks. Above all, it showed that English prowess did not depend on one man, Henry V. Verneuil also had important strategic consequences. It secured Normandy and Paris from French attacks. It also led to the English conquest of Maine and Anjou. In 1428, Bedford began an invasion of the so-called Kingdom of Bourges, the territories south of the Loire River loyal to Charles VII. For the French, the dark times of the 1340s and 1350s appeared to have returned. Yet they would now stage a remarkable comeback. The Loire proved to be a river too far for the English. Taking the numerous fortresses, guarding the river barrier overstretched the English military forces, which were already strained by 13 years of continuous warfare. In the summer of 1428, the English besieged Orléans. The siege became the focus of both sides. Then, in the spring of 1429, a peasant girl from Lorraine, Joan of Arc, appeared before Charles VII, claiming that she had been sent by God to raise the siege. Despite skepticism from many in his court, Charles allowed her to lead the French army. On May 8, 1429, Joan defeated the English outside Orléans. Her victory restored French morale and hopes. In the words of the famous writer Christine de Pizan, the sun began to shine again. In the aftermath of the victory at Orléans, the French went on the offensive. 
At the Battle of Pate on June 18, 1429, the French caught the English before they could establish their defensive formation. A cavalry charge by the French vanguard enveloped the English longbowmen. Pate wrecked the English field army and wiped out the corps of veteran archers in France. In the ensuing months, the French drove into northern France against little resistance. Their triumphant campaign culminated with the coronation of Charles VII, with Joan of Arc standing by his side in the Cathedral of Reims, the traditional crowning site of French kings, on July 17, 1429. A fundamental challenge had now been leveled against the so-called final peace of Troyes. The English position in France teetered on the brink of collapse, yet it was now their turn to rally. They poured 10,000 troops into France to hold Normandy and especially Paris. The Burgundians also intervened. In May 1430, they captured Joan of Arc outside Compiègne. Joan was handed over to the English, who tried her at Rouen and burned her at the stake. By the next year, the English felt secure enough to bring the ten-year-old Henry VI to Paris to be crowned King of France at Notre-Dame Cathedral. Many French people noted that the coronation had not taken place at Reims. The English and French had fought themselves to a stalemate. The deadlock would be broken by a turning point second only in significance to the death of Henry V. In the early 1430s, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, had opened negotiations with King Charles VII. The capture of Joan of Arc aside, Burgundian support for the English had been sporadic. Duke Philip had instead concentrated on extending Burgundian territory in the Low Countries. The Duke waited for the death of his close friend Bedford in 1435 to break Burgundy's alliance with England. By the Treaty of Arras, Philip the Good recognized Charles VII as King of France. This reversal of alliances sounded the death knell for England's ambitions in France. Throughout the Hundred Years' War, English success had depended on French disunity. With France now united under King Charles VII, enormous resources could be brought to bear against the remaining English possessions. In 1436, the French recaptured Paris. That the war still did not end was due to the massive military effort mounted by the English. In 1436, 10,000 troops were sent to save Calais and Normandy. Between 1440 and 1443, another 13,000 crossed the Channel. Even at the end of their military strength, the English were still formidable. Unable to finish the fight, the French agreed to a truce in 1444. With the truce, the English war machine completely broke down. After turning 16 in 1437, King Henry VI had taken up the reins of government. Indecisive and weak-willed, he was nothing like his father. To save money, the English government made defense cuts in Normandy, allowing its garrisons to run down and its fortifications to fall into disrepair. Even worse, Henry VI agreed to surrender Maine. Intended to assist peace negotiations, this move was a disaster because the French saw it as a sign of weakness. Charles VII made good use of the truce to reform and reinforce his army. In 1440, he had resurrected the standing army created by his grandfather Charles the Wise by establishing the Compagnie d'Ordonnance of heavy cavalrymen. By 1445, the Compagnie had a strength of 12,000. In addition, in 1448, 
the French king created a national infantry militia. Each parish in France was to provide a franc or share. What is especially striking is that these archers were to be long bowmen. The militia scheme could raise up to 8,000 troops for a single campaign. Moreover, Charles VII, like the English kings, required these troops to practice regularly with the longbow. However, because the French lacked a yeoman class, they could never develop a deep reservoir of expert archers. Perhaps fortunately, the Franc archers never had to face their English counterparts in a pitched battle. Far more effective than the Franc archers was Charles VII's reform of the French artillery train. The King of France appointed two artillery pioneers, the brothers Jean and Gabriel Biro, to overhaul his cannon arm. They introduced new, more effective guns, crewed them with better gunners, and developed more effective tactics. The English then foolishly gave the French an occasion to repudiate the truce and return to war. In 1449, the English captured the fortress of Fougere in Brittany as a way to intimidate the Duke of Brittany, who was drawing closer to France. Instead, Charles VII declared war and unleashed a carefully prepared invasion of Normandy. The French armies stormed through the province in a blitzkrieg, few places holding out for more than a few days. The English managed to scrape together and send a field army. However, on April 15, 1450, it was crushed by the French at the Battle of Formigny. During this battle, the French judiciously used their artillery to batter the English out of their defensive position. Out in the open, the English were then cut up by a French and Breton cavalry charge. The last English outpost in Normandy, Cherbourg, fell on August the 12th. The French finally turned their attention to Aquitaine. Although the war had begun there, Aquitaine had been largely quiet since 1415. In 1451, the French invaded and overran much of the duchy. The English were able to send a last expeditionary force in 1453 under John Talbot, a commander of long experience. At Castillon, the English army was decimated by French artillery fire and Talbot was killed. Bordeaux, capital of Aquitaine, surrendered on October the 19th, 1453. The Battle of Agincourt had indeed been a noble beginning for Henry V, but his death in 1422 robbed him of the chance to compose a suitable ending. The final chapter of the Hundred Years' War was instead written by Henry V's heir. Upon learning of the loss of Bordeaux, King Henry VI fell into madness. It is likely that he had inherited mental illness from his grandfather, Charles VI. If so, then France's mad king had the last laugh on his English foes. For the madness of Henry VI would lead to the outbreak of the long and brutal struggle for the English throne called the Wars of the Roses. It was now England's turn to suffer civil war. By then, the English only held Calais and its hinterland, the Pale. This last fragment of France was lost in 1558. Afterwards, the English only had the claim to the French throne. The kings of England would only stop calling themselves kings of France in 1802, eight years after the French revolutionaries had sent King Louis XVI to the guillotine. This ends Agincourt, episode 4 of Great Battles in History. My name is Daryl D. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com.
You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Great Battles. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies, particularly our liege lord Kevin Spooner, the director of the center, and his band of knights, Matt Baker, Eric Story, Kyle Falcon, and Matt Morden. Thank you very much for listening.